How many books, how many books do you know of that were composed over a thousand and five hundred years? The Bible has as its background all kinds of historical circumstances and situations. It covers from the days in Genesis chapter 11 with men like Nimrod to the end of the, of the time of the Roman Caesars in the New Testament. It has many different historical situations. It touches upon thousands of historical characters many of whom have been converted, their existence confirmed outside of Scripture. There's no book like it. There's no book close to it. And in the midst of this big book that covers such a vast period of time, is there anything that we can call a focus of the book. Yes, there is. In Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 25, as Jesus is talking to the disciples on the way to Emmaus, he said, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of Scripture. In verse 44, the same kind of discussion. These are my words which I spoke with you while I was still with you. All things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Tonight we want to begin the lesson by stressing this point and hopefully in a few examples that we give to show how the Bible all connects to this theme of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. We could go into much greater detail and after we establish that point we're not seeking to stop there. But this is certainly an essential part of this lesson. As I thought about how do you illustrate briefly the, whole, the message of Jesus and his resurrection is central to all of Scripture. Of course, there are too many examples and, and you could almost just pick one out of a hat to illustrate this. But let's start with the tabernacle. Because the tabernacle is discussed in Exodus 25 through 31. Then in Exodus 35 through 40, we read the actual building of the tabernacle. You read of it in three or four chapters in 1 Kings. So 1 Kings 6 and verse 1 to 1 Kings 9 verse 9. That's the temple which is a permanent version of the tabernacle. Now, the point of the tabernacle, the point of the tabernacle is God was establishing fellowship with his people. 
In Exodus 25 and verse 8, you see this point. God tells them to construct the sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That I may dwell among them. And the same idea is expressed in all of these passages. That was the purpose of the tabernacle. Now, I'll tell you what. That structure becomes even more meaningful when you understand what goes on in chapters 32 through 34. The instruction to build the tabernacle that God may dwell among the people in Exodus 25 through 31. The carrying out of those instructions in Exodus 35 through 40. But between them you find the incident of the golden calf. And Israel worships the golden calf. And in a way, this sums up the message of the Bible. That God is seeking to establish fellowship with man. And man is pushing him away as diligently as he he can. And God is not giving up on them. And after the tabernacle is built... In verses 34 and 35 of Exodus 40, the Bible tells us the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But all of these things, the same thing happens with the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8 verses 10 through 13. But what I'm trying to stress particularly is these things about the tabernacle were fulfilled in Jesus. In John 1 verse 14, the Bible tells us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It dwelt, it tabernacled among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The tabernacle where God dwells among man, when it's completed, the glory of the Lord comes down and fills that house. And these key words, tabernacle, and glory are repeated here in John chapter 1 and verse 14. And in the gospel of John, the glory of the Lord is particularly connected with the death and resurrection of Jesus. In John 13 verses 31 and 32, the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. As Jesus speaks of his coming death and resurrection, he speaks of being glorified. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the tabernacle was intended to be. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the temple is meant to be. I know I have a lot of verses here. But in John 2 verses 19 through 22, you are familiar with the text where the Bible tells us that Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they said to him, we've been building this temple for 46 years 
And you're going to build it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus is the temple. And Jesus particularly fulfills these passages about the temple in his death and in his resurrection. They are going to destroy him, destroy his body. And in three days, he will raise it up. All these ideas about the temple, the tabernacle, find their fulfillment in Jesus and particularly in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And when Jesus died, you remember Matthew 27, verse 51, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom as the way to heaven was made open and plain through the death of Christ. Now I'm just going to put up a couple of PowerPoints very briefly. I wanted to illustrate how this is true even in not the most central characters of Scripture. These are passages about Samson. Where Samson experienced the same thing that Jesus experienced. He was bound, handed over by his own people, betrayed by one of those closest to him. He was ridiculed in his death. Now I appreciate these on the front row who are so carefully writing down these notes. And I'll be glad to send you these PowerPoints, but I'm gonna go quickly. <laughs> and when he dies, he has the pillars on his right and on his left. As Jesus dies on the cross with a thief on his right, a thief on his left. And the deliverance Samson brings through his death was greater than any deliverance he brought through his life. The deliverance Jesus brings through his death is greater. Now that doesn't mean everything about Samson and Jesus are the same. Samson dies for his own sins. Jesus dies for ours. Samson dies asking for vengeance on his enemies. Jesus asking for mercy. But my point, my point is that even in characters that we don't think about as rebel, here, this passage points to the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is true of all kinds of events in the Old Testament. This is true in all kinds of New Testament events before the cross. I ask you, if you would, to turn with me to Matthew 14. I know we discussed this recently. I'm not going to rehash all the ways in which the death of John foreshadows the death of Jesus. I preached on that a few weeks ago. Some of you added some notes to my notes, and I appreciate that. But I told you last week, last Sunday morning, when we talked about the feeding of the 5,000, that there's something about this that I wanted to come back and revisit. And we're going to do that right now. This large crowd follows Jesus 
They are in a deserted place. It is evening. His disciples say, send the crowd away that we may give them something to eat. Jesus said, you give them something to eat. They said, we don't have enough here to eat. We have five loaves and two fish. I want you to listen to these words and think about them. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass. This is verse 19. He took five loaves and two fish. And looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to his disciples. Does any of that vocabulary catch your attention? He took the bread. He broke the bread. He blessed the bread. He broke the bread. And gave it to his disciples. Look at Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verses 26 and 27. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. Now, I, I know Matthew 14 said loaves. Matthew 26, verse 26 says bread. It is the same word. He took bread. He took loaves just like he did before. And after a blessing, just like Matthew 14, 20, Matthew 14, 19, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. As Jesus is giving his disciples the Lord's Supper as a memorial by which to remember him, it brings back the language of the feeding of the 5,000. The word break is used in Matthew's gospel only to talk about the breaking of the bread for the 5,000, the breaking of the bread for the 4,000, and the breaking of the bread in Matthew 26. Even the feeding of the 5,000 foreshadows, it foreshadows the Lord's Supper and the death of Christ. And it foreshadows the resurrection of Christ. Foreshadows his resurrection. Those two disciples on the way to Emmaus, do you remember when they begged Jesus to stay in their home, not realizing who he was? In Luke 24 and verse 30, the Bible says, when they reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and breaking it, he gave it to them. My point again, these, this feeding of the 5,000 foreshadows Jesus' death that we remember in the Lord's Supper and foreshadows his resurrection. Even events in the life of Christ foreshadow the centrality of the cross of Christ, of the resurrection 
of Jesus. And when we get to the book of Acts, when we get to the book of Acts, as we see the apostles preaching, as they are preaching, I just want to read the first of these verses. Notice how central this message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is. In verse 22 of Acts 2, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. You nailed him to the cross. God raised him from the dead. And if you look at all of those passages of Scripture, you will find as Peter went out to preach, as Paul went out to preach, this was consistently their message because this is the center point of all of Scripture, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And even in the things that Jesus tells us to do, commands us to do, they are connected with the death and resurrection. Look at Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, notice what's said in verses 11 through 13. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him having forgiven all your transgressions. Did you notice how Christ-centered baptism is? In verse 11, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision. In verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, just like Romans 6. You were raised with him Verse 12, and you were made alive together with him. Baptism is Christ-centered, and baptism particularly highlights the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The death, burial, and resurrection. You, the text tells us, you were dead in sin and having been buried with him in which you were raised with him. You're buried and raised when you were dead in your transgressions. Baptism highlights the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Not only is it the center of the Bible to everything that goes before, but everything that is after it points back. To it. Baptism is Christ centered. Baptism highlights the saving work of Christ in his death and resurrection. And baptism in this passage is God's work, not ours. I want you to investigate what I'm about to say because I know you're not going to, most of you 
will not be familiar with this offhand. If you want to look up Bible Hub, for example, on Colossians 2, and notice all the words, when they use verbs or participles that speak of master in Colossians 2, 11 through 13, those participles and verbs are passive. When that passage uses participles and verbs of God, they're active. What's my point? Baptism is God's work. It is faith in the working of God. Colossians 2 and verse 12. Now, a good reason, girls, why I try to hurry up early is because that's the introduction. And the next two hours are application. <laughs> why did I go through all of this? Baptism is foreshadowed from the earliest chapters of the Bible to even maybe historically insignificant characters in the Bible. It is foreshadowed. It is pointed back to by the preaching of the apostles and by what Jesus calls us to do. Should it surprise us that the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus are central to our public worship? Should it surprise us that, that, that these things are central to our public worship? It is the focal point of all of Scripture. It is the focal point of what we do when we come together. I want you to look at that passage again in Matthew 26. Matthew 26 about partaking of the Lord's Supper. In Matthew 26, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. Matthew 26, 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, as short as that is... You find prayers offered, the giving of the bread and the fruit of the vine, prayers, giving of the bread and the fruit of the vine, and singing. And in John's account, we find that at this time, Jesus speaks or preaches to the people. In some ways, the oldest account of what worship will look like in the public assembly of believers. 
As you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, as you turn your Bibles here, I would say this. Last, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the word worship and how it is used. And there are things we do in public worship, like we are tonight, singing and praying and reading the scripture that are not limited to public worship. They are also things we engage in in private worship. Lord's Supper is different than that. You don't see the Lord's Supper in the New Testament in a private setting. It was in a congregational setting. Now, we could look at this verse in a lot more detail than we're going to. But let's say a few things about this text. First of all, in verse 23, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night which he was betrayed, took bread. I delivered to you. The word delivered and the word betrayed are from the same word, interestingly. Now, why is that significant? I can give you the verses on this later if you want to know. It is the, it is the word used for Judas betraying Jesus. It is the word used for the Sanhedrin delivering Jesus to Pilate. It is the word used for Pilate delivering Jesus to be crucified. It is the word used of the Father giving the Son to be crucified. And it is the word used of the Son entrusting himself to the Father in 1 Peter 2 and verse 23. Amazing word. But I receive from the Lord... That which also I delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body. Which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this as a memorial, just like the Passover was a memorial in Exodus 12 and verse 14. So this is a memorial. If we had a relative that we loved and held dear who was dying away and he asked us or she asked us to do something in memory of them after they were gone, wouldn't we try to do it? Jesus said, do this in memory of me. On a few occasions in my life, I have been particularly on a few occasions in the University of Chicago Museum. I've been a few others. But, and I see these amazing Money 
humongous monuments that were made by these ancient kings that were buried in the sand for thousands of years but now have been discovered and put up in these museums and I wonder how many of the people that look at them even, the few that look at them, how many of them know anything about the king that it remembers? Isn't it amazing the kind of memorials throughout history that have themselves been covered in oblivion and forgotten? And yet, on every continent of the world today, everybody, somebody in every continent took the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine as a memory of Jesus. This memorial still circulates he is still remembered and he said in verse 26 for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death till he come when we are all taking the Lord's supper we are preaching that's what this word means to proclaim we are preaching the death of jesus to all who have ears to listen we are proclaiming it we are preaching it we are telling them that there no one comes to god except through him he is the way and the truth and the life we are preaching we are proclaiming him Until he comes. Until he comes. Now, turn back with me a moment to, to Matthew 26. And I want to make an observation here. In Matthew 26, after Jesus had given his disciples the bread and the cup, he said in verse 29, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I will not drink of this with you until I drink of it in my Father's kingdom. Now, many times we have interpreted that and I have interpreted that as a reference to the fact that Christ communes with us in the church as we take the Lord's Supper. And there may be some truth, to, that may be right. I, I think that's true. I don't know if that is the main point of that passage. I think when it says, I will not drink this with you until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, that this is a picture of salvation as a messianic banquet. The Old Testament uses this picture in Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. And it's picked up in the New Testament. You remember when we were talking about the uh, 
Gentile centurion in Matthew 8. And Jesus said, many will come from east and west and sit down in the kingdom of God. There was a picture of salvation of all of God's people getting home and being around the table. As I've heard many people say before, some of our best memories in life are around the table. And in this case, God pictures all the same as being at His table and enjoying His fellowship. When we take of the Lord's Supper, we are looking back to the death of Christ. And we are looking forward to that great banquet where we are in His presence in a greater way. You can take that and look at it and see if you think that's valid. But as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do proclaim the Lord's death until, until He comes. Now I want you to think about this. If this is not just some, this is not just a random act of worship. But it is intimately tied with the entire story of salvation. It is the most important event in human history. It is the most important event in the most important book that was ever written, the Bible. It is absolutely central. And may that be true? Could this be true of everything we do when we worship publicly? If this is not just some random act, but it is central to all God has done and all God has said, and a way to keep our hearts focused on Him, is it not possible that that's true about everything else that we do collectively? When we sing, when we pray, when we listen to his word, when we give, that this is at the heart of the biblical message. I think that our God, who created us to worship him, to draw our hearts to him, knows what he's doing when he directs us to worship as we do. I will not tell this as well as it was when I heard this from the lips of Melvin Curry. When the Berlin Wall fell and areas that had been closed to the preaching of the gospel were now open, he went with Mr. Payne and a couple of others 
to some former communist nations to, to look for contacts, to look for people who were Christians and to find some kind of contacts and to see what kind of preaching opportunities were there. He said one Sunday morning, they were in Warsaw, Poland. They had been given an address on a piece of paper. They, through much difficulty, find the house and knock on the door. They didn't speak the native language. And the lady and husband whose house they were going to spoke no English. They knocked on the door. They had trouble explaining why they were there. The lady didn't originally understand, but she saw their Bible. And she said, Bible. And And he said there were three or four of us who spoke no Polish. There were two of them who spoke no English. And yet, as we sat down and we took the bread and we took the fruit of the vine, not being able to understand each other at all, but at the same time, understanding each other perfectly. He said that moment, partaking of the Lord's Supper and worshiping with them that day was one of the most moving experiences of my life. And I know a little bit of that thing. But if that is moving, moving will it be when we are all in his presence for that final banquet in a world that never ends. As important as you may have thought the Lord's Supper was growing up and you may have been told it was as important as it is No matter what you were taught, my guess is it's more important than we ever conceived. Let us pray. Oh Lord our God, how awesome, how holy, how mighty and majestic you are. And Lord, you are so awesome and mighty, and yet you gave your son to die for us.
And we thank you that you give us an opportunity to remember you as we break the bread, as we share the cup. When we do that, oh God, may we truly preach you to a world who needs you desperately and to one another who needs you desperately. And we thank you for what you have prepared for us. It is because of Jesus and in him we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is central to human history. It is central to the message of the Bible. And it is central to what God wants of you to become a Christian. If you want to repent of the sins that you've been engaged in and led you away from God, if you want to turn from those and to be buried with Him in baptism, just like the working of God raised Jesus from the dead so you can be raised to walk in newness of life. If we need to explain that or talk with you about that further, please ask. Please ask because we want to. But if we can help you with that right now, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.